The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library with additional support from Clark County Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, and Wright Memorial Public Library. Hello, welcome to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis. It's my pleasure to welcome back to the program today Leah Garrett. Her book, X Troop, The Secret Jewish Commandos Who Helped Defeat the Nazis, just came out in paperback. Welcome back to the program. Oh, it's so nice to be here, and thank you. Yeah, the book just came out today, so it's really exciting to talk about it again. Well, I like this book so much that I had you on for the hardback, and now that it's out in paper, I had to have you come back. And if I really like a book, I like to double dip. So here you are. This is terrific. Thank you. And we even have a new uh, cover, so hopefully people will check that out as well. I like it. I'm, I'm very impressed. Yeah, the British um, publishers, um, Penguin, decided to go, go all out and do this very sort of snazzy new cover, and then the Americans copied it, which made me very happy. So it's on both of the versions of the book now, which is really nice. Is this photo actually of them? The photo is not actually of them because one of the things that was interesting in writing the book was trying to find a lot of photographic material. Uh, there's lots of photographs in the book. But in terms of seeing the X troop actually in action, um, there's actually very few photos of them because unfortunately, when the men landed at D-Day, the person who was assigned to take the photographs was killed within a few days. So mm. this whole amount of material of photographs we had uh, didn't exist after that moment. So they ended up going with a cover that was a different commando troop at Sicily. But because I talk about the ex-troopers landing at Sicily, they decided to use that. Well, it's a great photo. I did not remember seeing it in the original book, so I kind of assumed it wasn't actually them. Yeah. A, a lot of our listeners, I'd say 99% of our listeners, if they didn't hear the previous interview, have no clue who these people were. This was a, a top secret thing. How did you discover the story? Because it's really unknown. Yeah. I'm, and would you like me to sort of briefly describe who they were for those who don't know? And then I can tell you how I came about it. Uh -huh. So in 1942, as I talked about before, um, when we talked last time, you know, the, the war was going really poorly for the British. And it seems as if Germany was just going to sweep its way through all of Europe and capture capture country after country, and, and, and seemed pretty much unstoppable. And so at that point in time, Winston Churchill and Lord Mountbatten put their brains together and decided that they would create this unknown secret commander troop, which would be called X-Troop, which would be composed of German-speaking uh, men who would be trained both as commandos and in counterintelligence. So the idea with these guys would be that in the heat of war, they would be at the front of the battle, they would capture the Germans using their commando training, and then while they were right in battle, they would interrogate them, you know, to say, you know, where are the mines laid, where's the machine gun nest? So they would be duly trained this way, and the idea was that they would be this very secret force that would turn the, turn the tide of the war, which in fact they did. Um, but when they decided that they wanted German speakers, they didn't really go through in their head who would be German speakers who would want to go back and fight the, the Nazis. And, of course, it would be Jewish guys who wanted to do this. So almost every member of the X troop was actually a Jewish refugee who had come to England on, on one or another transit visa or kinder 
transport programs when they were teenagers. And so all of them already had this very fierce desire to get back at the Nazis. And this allowed them to do it. And just one last point about them before I tell you sort of how I discovered this um, story was that once they were selected to be in the X troop, the British military knew that they were in, in, at incredible risk because they were Jewish, they were Germans fighting the Germans, and they were commandos. And Hitler had done a commando edict to kill all commandos on site. So all of the men who ended up being ex-troopers ended up having about 10 minutes to come up with fake British names. They all had to pretend that they were British. They all had to come up with fake British backstories. They had to wear Church of England dog tags. And I can talk in a second if you want about how all of the sort of recent stuff that's happened since the book came out about about this aspect of it. You mean, you mean all... Operation Benjamin? Well, no, more that they were buried under crosses. Okay. Um, yeah. And so stuff's happened at that, at that level since the book came out, getting okay. these guys moved from crosses. So that's sort of the background. I'm sure we'll delve into it more. But the way it came across the book was that I had written my last book also about Jewish soldiers, but I had focused on American soldiers because I, you know, I come from a family of American Jewish soldiers. It was always greatly interesting to me. And I, and I felt that when people talked about World War II and the Holocaust and Jewish resistance, they kind of had it wrong because all they tended to focus on was things you know, like the Warsaw Uprising, where people fight back, but everyone's killed, or partisan groups. And I had felt very strongly that by not telling the story of Jewish soldiers, we weren't telling the full story of Jewish resistance, because we know that Jews served in disproportionately high numbers and were incredibly heroic in battle, because the war was personal for these guys in World War II. So after I wrote my last book about Jewish American soldiers, I wanted to continue. And I just found, you know, all these traces of this story about X troop, you know, like a, I don't know, a chapter in a book, you know, a, a website, a self-published autobiography, this kind of stuff. But, but I realized that there was this extraordinary story that nobody had told before. And that it was sort of a story that was hanging there in the ether that, that needed somebody to tell that story. And so when I decided to start working on it, I, I initially reached out to commandos because there were still commandos alive when I wrote the book. And that's another thing I have to add is I have found since I talked to you that there's actually another commando still alive, which really? is incredible. Yeah. And um, so when I reached out to commandos and their kids and stuff to write the book and, and start to go to archives around the world, I discovered that there was this huge wealth of material that was just sitting there in these archives, sitting there in the British War Diaries, all these different places. And it, it was like this book needed to be written, and I got to be very, very lucky to write the book. That's like a dream come true, isn't it? It was like a dream, dream come true, and I'm still in touch. I mean, since we last spoke, I, me and all of the kids of Commandos, we've set up like a email exchange program. We're all in touch with one another. Um, it's been really incredible um, to sort of have this kind of connection with their families as well. You're listening to The Book Nook. My guest is Leah Garrett. We're talking about her book, X Troop, The Secret Jewish Commandos Who Helped Defeat the Nazis, just out in paperback. And I'm guessing that this book was very well received in England because you're writing about British guys. Yes. 
it, it was, it was, and also what I write about in the book, I tell this story of this chapter of British history. You know, I tell the chapter of British history about the commandos, but I also talk about some of the hard stuff that these refugees went through, which is that they were all interred because uh, the British decided when the war broke out to inter German refugees without really thinking that, you know, 85% of them are Jewish. So there's a pretty dark chapter I write about as well mm -hmm. in the UK, which hadn't really had much coverage until this book came out. But the book itself ended up being serialized in the Daily Mail and the BBC, all these different places. So it did, ha it did have and has had a very beautiful kind of response in the UK um, because people didn't, people didn't know the story before the book came out. And um, can I talk about sort of that tangible impact with the with the burial? Sure. Since I spoke to you. Sure. Yeah. So when these guys were in war, um, like I said, they all had to come up with fake British names. They ended up fighting in all the major campaigns of Europe. So they were incredibly heroic. And I have like pictures of them in the book, and I tell their story. I think in a pretty um, exciting way. And um, but unfortunately for those who were killed, as I said, that they were buried under crosses. So when the book came out, it was really incredible. I, I started to get contacted by families. I heard from, for instance, a woman in California who said her great uncle had been one of the ex-troopers and he had been buried under a cross. And she wanted him to be buried under a Star of David with his real name because that hadn't happened. So a couple of months ago, um, I put her in touch with an archivist I know in the UK who's been very helpful with everything. And they invited me to a Zoom session. Um, and I watched, you know, crying my eyes out as they did a full military reburial of this ex-trooper, as well as a Jewish burial. They did both at the same time. It was exquisite. And they, they moved him to a Star of David with his real name. So it's it's been so amazing to sort of see history in action with the publication of this book. Which one was he? Was he someone in your book? Um, he is someone I actually don't go into detail in with the book because the book focuses about on about 10 of the guys. Right. So I mentioned him. He died at the, um, he died after, sort of right after the war, but he, he never had told anybody his real name. So he was buried under a cross. And what is his real name? Oh, it's a long German Jewish name that uh -huh. I am blanking oh, okay. on right now, okay. but I can send Sorry. you the link to it. Sorry, but that's okay. Uh, my guest is Leah Garrett. We're talking about X Troop, and uh, this is a pretty amazing group of guys. Uh, they really were heroic, and, and you just mentioned as we began the interview that they came onto the beach at D-Day, and I want to talk yeah. more about that in detail, but first we need to take a break. You're listening to The Book Nook on WYSO, connecting our community through news, music, and storytelling on the air and online. I'll continue my conversation with Leah Garrett right after this. You're listening to The Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis, and it's my pleasure to be joined on the program today by Leah Garrett. We're talking about her book, X Troop, The Secret Jewish Commandos Who Helped Defeat the Nazis. Just down in paperback, she joins us on the phone in Manhattan. And uh, we were talking before the break about D-Day, uh, at least I mentioned it, and uh, they did come on uh, the beach at D-Day, and didn't they have a bunch of bicycles with them? Yeah, so um, so after the guys did their, they, the guys did very, very intensive training to become these commandos, because, you know, they had to not only be a top 
form as commandos to kill and capture the enemy. They were also all trained in counterintelligence. So it was like a year-long, very intensive training on all aspects of the military. So before the D-Day landings, the British military starts to say to itself, wait, these guys are not only good, they're amazing, and we really want to use them for all of our campaigns right at the tip of the sword. So before the D-Day landings, the group existed as their own sort of commando unit called X-Troop, but the British decided these guys are just so valuable we don't want to have them fight as their own commander unit for two reasons. One is they could all be wiped out. You know, let's say uh, uh, let's say they're shelled and then they're all wiped out. These guys are too valuable an asset. Also, because of their language skills, their commando training, their counterintelligence, they could actually be on the front lines of all the existing commander units. So the guys are sent to Southampton, which is where the D-Day ships are leaving from, and they're they're put into all of these existing commando units, like four are picked for 41 commando, some are picked for six commando, all these existing British ones, which is really extraordinary because the way commando units tended to work in the British military is the guys would all train together for like a year. And the idea was that there'd be really a cohesive unit who would land together. And these ex-troopers are now being plucked in threes and fours and said, and being told, look, just, you know, you need to go into this unit and become a leader in it with men like they had literally met the day before the landing. So one of the guys, Peter Masters, who I write about in great detail in the book, he had been a Jewish refugee from Vienna. He had been raised in a very middle-class cultured family. He wanted to be an artist. Um, He came as a teenager to the UK because his parents had to send him away because of the rise of Nazism. And He does the training, and one of the things about him is that when he was growing up in Vienna, he loved to ride his bike everywhere. Mm -hmm. And when he became an art student in London before he was selected, he rode his bike everywhere. So it's just something he loved. And so when they're they're in Southampton, the ex-troopers, being sent in different groups, one of the officers comes up to him and says, Hey, Peter, do you know how to ride a bike? And he says, Yeah, I love riding bikes. And the guy says to him, you want to be part of the bicycle troop? And he says, yeah, sure, I'll give it a go. Now, the bicycle troop was a, was part of an existing commando unit that had been training for months together. And the idea was that the guys would land with these incredibly awkward, heavy, fold-up bicycles at Sword Beach on D-Day. And I have a picture of them in the book where you can actually see them coming off the boat at Sword Beach with these bikes. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that once they would land, they would ride their bikes in front of everyone else, past you know, past the sappers, past the guys looking for mines, and they would make their way directly to Pegasus Bridge. Because as we all know, Pegasus Bridge was this hugely important uh, bridge that the British had to get so the Germans couldn't sort of hold the area. Mm-hmm. And so he's like literally walking down to the boat when they say, hey, you want to take, you want to be in the bicycle troop they give him a bike and his only practice on it is to ride it down to the to the to the boat when all these guys have practiced for months together so he lands with them at d-day he his his he's burning with a desire to get the nazis as are all these jewish refugees he's pretending to be a british guy named peter masters that's his fake name his real name is peter Arany. And he lands with them at Sword Beach, and he leads the way with these other members of the bicycle troop. 
And as a, a fellow commando in a different unit said, I can't imagine anything worse to land on a beach with <laughs> on D-Day than a bike. But these guys did it. They landed. And he leads the way as they ride through the Bocage country, make their way inland in front of everyone else. And it's, it's really one of many exquisite moments I write about in the book, which is, I mean, that this Jewish refugee from Vienna pretending to be British is on the first bikes crossing Pegasus Bridge, which was this absolutely crucial moment in the history of World War II, when, the, when the, it becomes evident that the British are going to be able to sort of change the tide of war. That is totally insane. It's insane. Can I just say one more thing? Yeah. That, you know, the, the movie The Longest Day came out about, um, which some of the audience people probably saw, and The, the Longest Day reframes it, and they have Lord Lovett, who, who was the commanding officer of the bicycle troop, crossing the bridge um, uh, uh, while well, you know, he's being shot at and all this stuff. And Peter Masters, when I went into the archives, I found all these letters he wrote to Lord Lovett saying, you know, it's great that they did it this way, but you got to remember who was really crossing the bridge first. <laughs> yeah. And it's really amazing because a, a couple of days after Pegasus Bridge, Lord Lovett actually gets more profoundly and deeply wounded by shrapnel, and it's Peter Masters and one of this other member of the X-Troop who saves his life, uh, the life of Lord Lovett. And I tell that story in the book as well. And poor Masters, he's... He's finding these Germans, and his Tommy gun keeps jamming on him. And his Tommy comes, oh, it's so terrible, yes. <laughs> yeah, just one of the stories in X Troop. Of course, my favorite, and I know I mentioned this when we talked about the book the first time, was this guy who captures all these people. And he's, he totally does it with bravado. Ian Harris is this really macho guy. He, like, grows up in Germany, and he, you know, he— fights off the anti-Semites while he's a teenager. But he ends up going to, his parents send him to a boarding school, which, as he said, becomes a hotbed of the rise of Nazism. So he's, he spends his youth around all these guys who are going to end up being the men he fights as the enemy once mm. he's selected for X-Troop. So he's there at the landings. Every time he's injured, he walks away from the field hospital because he's determined to kill and capture as many Nazis as possible. He loves the fight. I mean, he just loves the fight. Um, when they cross the Rhine, you know, he's there at all the battles. When they cross the Rhine, he says, oh, I'm so excited to be going home and bringing the fight back to the Germans on their own soil. So everything about it, he finds just completely terrific. And I tell a lot of stories about him. One of the stories I tell is when he takes on the Hitler Jugend on his own, and um, he ends up being injured. He loses an eye, and I and I put in the book the citation that's written about him, where they say rarely has anyone fought as bravely as Ian Harris. But before that happens, once they're over, you know, they've gotten their way through Normandy, they're successfully moving forward and he hears and he's 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 with a different commander unit again nobody knows he's really a jewish guy he has a fake name and he hears that there's this um there, there's a battalion of germans who are sort of on the side of the town and he says to himself i'm going to go deal with those germans so he gets in a jeep he drives straight to them and he knows it's risky but he just wants as he says at this point I just want the war to end because, he, you know, he has family he wants to rescue who are in hiding, and this is really personal to him. And he goes to this 
group and he finds the commanding officer. He pretends to be higher ranking than he is. And he says, I'm here to take your surrender. <laughs> and the German guy says, why should we surrender? Like, why are we going to surrender? So he offers the guy some cigarettes and they start to have a conversation. And the guy says to him, the German guy says, look, I'll, I want you to show me why we should tender, surrender. And Ian Harris says, because our weapons are better than yours. And the guy says, no, they're not. And he says, yeah, let's have a shooting contest. By the way, this all happens. It's all like in the war diaries. I have all of this material that proves that this happened. So they go outside and they have a, a shooting contest. And he, Harris has his Tommy gun. <laughs> the German guy has his Luger. And of course, Harris wins the, the, the shooting contest. And the German surrenders his, his entire battalion. And so... Fortunately, because nobody would believe this actually happened, there happened to be a film crew sort of in the town. And there's this amazing photo I have in the book, which was actually based on a film mm -hmm. that was circulated around the world with Ian Harris sitting in the Jeep with all the men marching behind him um, that he just got to surrender by winning the shooting contest. All his prisoners, a huge, a huge prisoners. group of guys just... <laughs> And he talked about, by the way, I, I didn't say this last time, but because he had been raised and went to that sort of that boarding school with all these guys who ended up being leaders of the Nazis, he, he like he started to give them commands in German of the type that he said that they were used to. But now he was in charge. Mm. And that was one very important aspect of this group was that when they were on the battle lines and it was crucial to make quick decisions they could interrogate prisoners very quickly and, and yeah. find out information. Otherwise, an American soldier who didn't speak German would just send them back to be you know, put in a stockade somewhere, and they wouldn't be able to ask them anything. That's right. And that was crucial. I mean, they I mean that's sort of what they did best was I tell the story of Monfred Gans, who lands at Sword Beach, um, that he uses during the war, he uses the name Fred Gray, and then he switches back to Montfort Gans after the war. And once he lands at Sword Beach, it's absolute carnage. And he runs up the beach and he immediately captures like 20 Germans and he starts to interrogate them in German. They're shocked because he's like this British guy. Why is he speaking German to me? And he gets them to show him and the surviving members of his commander unit because of the carnage where all the mines are laid and get, get them safely off the beach. And that's because of this ability to use their German to do these on-site interrogations, and he ends up saving half of his commando unit at that point in time. And that happens over and over again. That's sort of like the running story, which is that they're not only like fighting and killing the enemy incredibly bravely, but they're also gathering intelligence to make it so that the, that the battles are successful for the British. It's an incredible story. It's X-Troop, the secret Jewish commandos who helped defeat the Nazis. Leah Garrett wrote it just out in a paperback, and she joins us again on the program. And I want to talk a little bit about dog tags. Did you see the Operation uh, Benjamin article in the New York Times this week? Yes, I did see that, and I, I was thinking about that with the guys who were being reburied this week. I mean, that have been reburied over the last few months, actually. Well, it made some points that I think people might not think about why would these soldiers, and in this case, they were talking about American soldiers, but, right. but why would they be, be buried as Christians when they were Jewish? And it explained that there were a couple of very significant reasons. Number one, they would have Christian on their dog tags because yep. 
they were afraid if they got captured by the Germans and, and their dog tags said they were Jewish, that something really horrible would happen to them. Plus, there was a lot of anti-Semitism within their own ranks. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I was interviewed um, for this documentary a couple of years ago for PBS, which I really recommend highly for people. It's called G.I. Jew. And it talks about this reality of what it meant to be a Jewish American soldier. It's a really great documentary. But one of the stories they tell, which is actually a positive counterpoint to the New York Times article, was was also there were many moments where American non-Jewish GIs stood up for their Jewish brethren. Mm -hmm. This this documentary tells this incredible story of a bunch of Americans who were captured. There was there was a handful of Jewish guys amongst them, and they were put in a prisoner of war camp and the Germans came to their commanding officer and said, you need to tell us who the Jews are because, well, I mean, it was implied we're basically going to send them off and kill them. And this commanding officer, and it's all in the documentary, G.I. Jew, stands up and says, I'm not going to allow that to happen. No matter, no matter what, I will not tell you who the men are who, who are Jewish. And they threatened to kill him. And he and all the other Christian soldiers refused to give up their name. So mm. there were actually, at the same time, many of these moments where these non-Jewish guys, you know, stood up for their the Jewish guys in their midst because they saw that they were all united by being part of the military family. So there was definitely anti-Semitism, but there was often also this kind of, these kinds of bonds that were developed that were really, really deep as well. That is wonderful to know. And I, I thought the article in the Times was very informative. They also had a stat in there where they, they did the math, simple math. They, they counted the graves of American soldiers in Europe, yeah. and they did the math, and they said, okay, well, a certain percentage of uh, soldiers were Jewish, and we counted up the number of graves, and there's a lot fewer graves uh, compared to the percentage, so there must be a lot of Jewish soldiers that are buried as Christians. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in the British military, it, was, it wasn't it was just the ex—I mean, the ex-troopers all were required to take on fake British names and wear the dog tags at the Church of England. But in writing this book, I have found that there were actually numerous um, Jewish-British uh, people who also took on fake British names because they knew how much at risk they were. They weren't required to. The ex-troopers were required to. But it was extremely commonplace in the British military as well. And I think the Church of England dog tags, because you knew that that gave you a tiny modicum of protection if you were captured. True. I think that it was fairly common in the United States for uh, families that had immigrated to change their names so that they weren't so, so Jewish. I think that was fairly common, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And you know, it was interesting in writing this book because I discovered when I started to interview the children of commandos, and like I said, a couple of commandos who were still alive at that point, that the vast majority of the men who became ex-troopers kept their British names. They did not revert to their Jewish names, and many of them didn't tell their families, their children, that they were in fact Jewish. And I think it's because many of them felt sort of a, a, a fear that what happens if this returns, I need to protect my children. And and it was interesting because most of the kids figured out that they were Jewish, but many of the dads didn't want to go into it because I also, you know, of course, the Holocaust is so painful and talking about it, mm-hmm. a lot of survivors didn't want to talk about it. 
But for many of the men who immigrated to the United States, they did revert to their original names. And at least at that point in time, you know, after the war, there was a precipitous decline in anti-Semitism in America. So many of the ex-troopers came to America and felt that this was a place that they could actually authentically be themselves again. For most of those who stayed in the UK, because as we know, after the war in the UK, there was like another revival of fascism there. Um, many of them decided not to do that, that they would kind of pretend that they were still Church of England and keep living those lives. There was a revival of fascism in England after the war? Yeah, I'm writing about that in my new book. There was. Are you really? There was a, yeah, it, was, it, was, it didn't catch on, but it was sort of this feeling that this could be a threat there in a different way, whereas here all of that stuff was completely stamped out. Were these Mosley types? Yeah, Mosley actually came back mm -hmm. after the war. Crazy. It's a crazy, crazy story. It's well, terrible. When you said that, I thought, I don't know anything about this. And of course, now you're writing a book about it. So Yes, I, I'm actually writing a book. This is crazy, but I'm writing a book about all of these uh, British and American Jewish gangsters who took on the fight against fascism before, after, and during the war. So with mostly, I talk about the British gangsters who, who, who took them on, the British Jewish gangsters who took them on before the war, during the war, and after the war. You're, you have two books going? Well, this, no, this is, no, that, the, the book about the gangsters is part of the broader project about fascism. Oh, it's oh one okay. Book. It's one uh, big book. Oh, okay. All right. I'm working on that. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, that's ambitious. My guest is <laughs> Leah Garrett. We're talking about her book, X Troop, The Secret Jewish Commandos Who Helped Defeat the Nazis. And early on, you mentioned that you, since the book came out in hardcover, have discovered a commando you didn't know about. Uh, and yeah. I want to talk about that, but first we need to take a break. Okay. The book nook will continue right after this. You're listening to the book nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis, and I have a guest on the phone right now in Manhattan. We're talking about her book, X Troop, The Secret Jewish Commandos Who Helped Defeat the Nazis. Leah Garrett is her name. And um, Leah, are you still a professor at Hunter College? I am still a professor at Hunter College. Uh, yes, I'm spending this week uh, grading all my student papers. So it's it's a uh, end of term time here. Nice. Well, we were talking before about this missing commando. I want to hear this story. Yeah. So when the book came out, I started to do a lot of um, I think I've probably done maybe about 40 events around the book, which has been incredible. Almost all of them have been by Zoom, you know, where I talk to different Jewish community centers or synagogues or universities, all these different places. And whenever I do an event, I invite the families of, of commandos to attend online, this kind of stuff. And and I, I kept thinking as I was doing the event, you know, I, I really hope that this brings me into contact with more families. And it did. So I started to make connections with other children of commandos who have joined our group online that we're doing together. And and I had this dream in the back of my head, well, maybe somehow in doing these events, I'll find out if more commandos are alive. Because when I read the book, I was very lucky because I got to interview who I thought were the two last living commandos. One is this very was this very famous economics professor, Paul Streeton, who I got to interview before he passed away. And then the other was this extraordinary um, ex-trooper who, who asked me to keep his pseudonym in the book um, because he hadn't really told people about his story. So I got to interview him in person, and that was incredible. And he unfortunately passed away right before the book came out. And so, you know, I've been doing all of these interviews. So the book came out last year, and 
I do an event like a week ago with a small sort of book group in Canada online. I think about 40 people attended the Zoom event. And while I'm doing the event, one of the people interviewing me says, do you know that there's an ex-trooper here in Canada who's still alive? I thought my head would explode. I said, wait, what? Are you serious? And she said, yeah, we'll put you in touch with him. There's, there's actually, I was completely blown away because I hadn't heard any of this. I knew nothing about this. So it turns out that there is an ex-trooper who's very much still alive. He's living at an old-age home in Canada. I was put in touch with the director of the old-age home, and we've been doing email with one another. One of the children of an ex-trooper is very excited about it because he lives in Canada and is going to try and start visiting him. And it turns out that he's still going strong. He sent me information. He wasn't with the first group of ex-troopers, but there was sort of a second group that came a little bit later that he was with. And I'm hoping, you know, in later editions of the book to add his story to the ones I have already and to interview him as well. But it only just happened over the last week or so. You better move fast. He's got to be about 100. i got to move fast. Yeah, I think he's about 98 right now. Because <laughs> that generation, they're, they're fading into the twilight, that's yes, for sure. exactly. And they, they actually told me at the old age home that they did a ceremony about him and his service, which I never knew about, that they're going to send to me. And all the children of ex-troopers are very excited to see this. So that's going to be the first step. And then my hope or plan is to interview him as well. That is pretty exciting. I it's guess, pretty exciting, I, yeah. I, I guess you need to put the other project on hold briefly while, yes. while you try to get that together. Yeah, absolutely. This is just so exciting. And it literally only just happened. I was completely shocked when I was just doing this small talk for Canadians that there was this whole story out there that I hadn't known about. Mm. Leah Garrett joins me. Her book is X Troop, The Secret Jewish Commandos Who Helped Defeat the Nazis. And I'm guessing that since it's been a year since the book originally came out, that there's probably some other things that have surfaced, other bits of information that you didn't know about since you've been doing all these events. You've, you found this missing commando. Yes. Are there some other little tidbits that, that you wish you could have included in the book that you've heard about since it came out? Yes, there was one... There was one child of a commando who got in touch with me just a couple months ago um, and sent to me something I also didn't know existed, which was the memoir. I think it was his great uncle, um, which talks in detail about um, landings that the guys did before D-Day when they landed surreptitiously in France to gather intelligence. I knew that there was rumors of this kind of stuff, but I hadn't had any verification in any of the official material. So my hope with that information, I'm just going through it now, so I, I can't, I don't really have details on it yet because mm. I just got the, the material, but I'm hoping in later editions of the X Troop book to flesh out a lot more, not only that the men were on all these very important, you know, battles, the Battle of the Bulls, Sicily, landing at D-Day and stuff like that, but also that they were used in really important ways before the landings to gather intelligence um, across enemy lines, which I knew a little bit about but didn't have the full range of. So that that's going to be a really important addition to later versions of the book as well. Isn't that slightly unusual to be able to keep changing the book and adapting it? And, it is and... very <laughs> unusual, the living history. And, you know, it's part, of, it's part of being the first person to tell the story oh. um, that— there's just so much information that needs, you know, that 
And I've been really lucky because, as I mentioned earlier, there's this great British archivist in the UK. And so whenever I get more material, I send it to him because he's setting up a whole database of this kind of stuff. You know, names and everything we can gather, he's putting together in a cohesive sort of spot. He he works at he worked at the Jewish um, Jewish Military Museum in, in London, so it's really nice. So so as all the material comes in, we keep adding it. Not, not only do I plan to add it to the book, but actually to the archive as well. We have some listeners who are probably wondering, since they're hearing about what you write about, what you teach at uh, Hunter College. What what do you do there? Well, the course I just wrapped up this semester, which was such a pleasure, was on Jewish. Uh, World War II novels. So that was oh. fantastic. So I'm reading a bunch of amazing papers my student wrote comparing things like, you know, The Naked and the Dead and Catch-22. So it, it's wonderful. But that was sort of a passion project class, which I taught to honor students. Uh-huh. I generally teach broader courses on things like, you know, Jewish novels or um, Jewish American history or Jewish World War II history, that kind of stuff. Okay. So I teach a range of or immigration history, stuff around the stuff around Jewish history uh, generally. But this last semester, I got to teach very specifically on my work, which was wonderful. Do you know someone at Hunter named Dorothy James? I've heard the name Dorothy James, but I do not know them. Okay. Because I have to tell you, with the lockdown over the last sure. couple of years, yeah, we've all been kind of out of touch with each other. We're back on campus now, but um, it's been very hard to have those kinds of connections over the last few years. Well, she recently published a book about a guy in Vienna named Jura Seufer, who, huh. who died in a concentration camp. He, he was originally from the Ukraine, and his family moved to Vienna, where he became very active fighting the fascists and the Nazis, and uh, he actually is best known probably for writing a song called The Dachau Song. And, wow. And I had, uh, I didn't have Dorothy on the show, but I had her editor on the show, and that's how I found out about this story. And, and uh, he wrote a novel that was never published, and uh, just a, an amazing guy. That's amazing. And, and he was a young Jewish man in Vienna, and uh, just really, really something. I thought you might... Yeah. You might know no, about I Dorothy. No, I try and reach out to her because I, I run a lecture series at Hunter College where we bring different speakers, and it, she sounds perfect for that. Okay. Leah, um, we were chatting on email earlier, and you, you had uh, attempted possibly to reschedule this interview uh, for another day, and I said, well, I'm sorry because that's the time when I'm supposed to be interviewing your husband. and. and <laughs> And I, that's very unusual. For, I, yes. I can't remember in all the years I've been interviewing authors where I've ever had to say something like that to someone like, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm interviewing your, <laughs> your partner. Yes. And, and I, I do want to mention that you're married to Adrian McKinty, who has a new book out. Yes. And uh, I am planning on interviewing Adrian here very soon. And I'm wondering, he's probably sitting there listening nearby, but, but I'm wondering – what question should I ask him that nobody asks him? Oh, that is a tough one. Let me think about that for a second. Oh, okay. Um, I, well, the new book is set in Australia where uh-huh. we live. Mm-hmm. Um, I would ask him about sort of the real background to the island. How did he come up with this book? And um, why did he decide he wanted to write about it now? Um, I think that's some, some very interesting stuff that he could share. Oh, that's good. Well, I heard something about how he almost had an accident in Australia that kind of was the seed for this almost accident, well, actually, a real accident that takes place in his story. Yes, it's funny. You know, I went with him when he launched his 
his new book last week um, in Manhattan, and he asked me to come along, which, of course, I was very happy to do. We went to one of the local bookstores where he launched the book, and he was talking about how we had been driving the car with the kids on this island in Australia, and Adrian was this, and that becomes the basis for the book that he wrote. And Adrian was describing this island and stuff, and honestly, he was only giving you a tenth of how scary it was. And so I, I interrupted and I said, i got to tell the audience here, as, as scary as Adrian's making this island sound, it was ten times worse. It was a really, really scary place. Really? And that ended up being the, yeah, the basis for the, for the novel. I love and it. it should be the basis of a novel because it was such a crazy story that he's going to tell in this book. This is good. Thank you. Was that the mysterious bookshop that you went to? Yes, it was, actually. Okay, and was. he was with Steve Hamilton? Yes, that's right. And was Otto there? Otto was there. Otto. I, I saw him at the start. Yes, I, I met him. I hadn't met him before. Yes, I, I love Otto. Yeah. I've had him on the great. show twice. He is amazing. Yeah, he was wonderful. The whole thing was wonderful, but it was really great to talk about this experience. Um, and and I think Adrian's book is just incredible, the new, the new one that's come out. And the readers will love it. It's very exciting Good summer read. That was Otto Penzler I mentioned. Uh, Yes, the island, and and I agree. uh, I thought, well, okay, after the chain, which really put Adrian on the map and was a huge bestseller, I thought, okay, this is going to be tough. How does he equal or surpass the chain? And I think he did it. Yeah, I do. I do too. I completely agree. I'm going to read it again. I enjoyed it so much the first time. Oh, man. And the way it starts... The, yeah, and the, the way it starts. Yeah, 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 yeah. This weird family with Ma. Ooh. Oh, my Ugh. God. But it was really like that. I just have to say again, it, it was a terrifying day. It was really, there was really a family like that. It was really a family like that. I'm so glad he wove it into a whole novel. No. Yes, it really was a family like that. Oh, no. That's, that's like suddenly you, you pull off the highway and you stop at a place called the Bates Hotel and you're like, oh, Okay. Yes, it was like that. It was exactly like that. <laughs> okay. So well, it was scary. Well, we digress. My, my guest is Leah Garrett. We're talking about X Troop, or at least we were talking about X Troop, the secret Jewish commandos who helped defeat the Nazis. What else do you have to share with us today as, as we're running out the clock on the show? Um, I, I think that what I would share is that, you know, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing to come across a historical story about World War II that hasn't been told before. And part of the pleasure of writing this book was getting to do this full-fronted attack on the story, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So getting to interview the children of commandos was just such a deep joy to get. And this was right before lockdown. I got very lucky. I got to get all the research done right before lockdown, and then I spent lockdown writing the book. So meeting these family members was incredible. Getting to meet commanders who were still alive and actually interview them about their war experience. And then discovering this thing, um, I'm not sure I talked about in the last interview, but was that the British kept these very detailed uh, things called war diaries, where they wrote down all, you know, they would write down every event every day of the war and tell it through the guys of whichever commander unit or battalion or wherever they were. So it would be like, 41 Commando, October 2nd, 1944. And then they would give you these great details about what happened that day. And just one of the greatest pleasures of writing this book was, and also all the ex-troopers had done a lot of interviews after the war, which were held at the Imperial War Museum. So finding these interviews with these amazing heroic men, listening to the interviews, and then saying to myself, which is 
true with what we know about interviews is they're fallible. People don't always remember things accurately. And then so finding, like Ian Harris would say, well, you know, I was on this hill and I killed all these Hitler Jugends. And then going to the war diaries, tracing down that particular day, finding it in the war diaries, and then finding, oh, my God, this is all true. He actually did this, this level of heroism of these men, and not only telling their story, but having it all be historically verified as I was telling the story was just such a pleasure. And I hope that when people read the book and read these incredible stories, I not only tell about the war, but I tell about after the war, the guys were all used for the denazification efforts to capture Nazis after the war. Mm -hmm. And then I tell the story of what they did after the war as well. You know, who did they become? And most of them lived incredibly successful lives after the war. Just getting the opportunity to tell that story has just been so life-changing and wonderful. And, you know, getting daily emails from the kids of commandos and getting updates, it's just, it's been such a pleasure. And I hope that kind of pleasure translates into the book when people read it. I think it does. My dad uh, was in the U.S. Marine Corps uh, in the Pacific in World War II, and, and he went through boot, wow. camp, boot camp in San Diego, and he didn't ever talk about it. But I know it was really difficult. And in your book, you talk about the training that these guys yeah. went through. And just reading about it, I almost dropped dead. It, it was so yeah. strenuous. Yeah, and you know what's what's incredible about it is there. Like, as I said about Peter Masters, most of them came from these pretty cultured middle-class families in Germany and in Austria. You know, they have no—none of the guys have any background in this kind of stuff. Uh They're selected by MI5 to be part of this incredible commander unit. Then they're all sent to Wales because their commanding officer is this wonderful Welsh guy, not Jewish. He's from Wales, so they do their training and commando training there. So not, not only are they doing this incredibly intense training, you know, jumping out of airplanes, running up mountains, going to, you know, doing all, you know, doing, taking part guns, blindfolded, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> but on top of it, they're living with Welsh locals. I tell this full story in the book because I just found it so intriguing. They're all pretending to be British. Uh-huh. They're all hiding the fact that they're Jewish. They can barely remember their own names. Now they're asked to remember the names of all their mates who they knew, you know, from previous years and stuff like that. It's really shocking and incredible that they managed it. So not only are they doing the, the training, but on top of it, they have these deep personal things going on about pretending to be these British guys, you know, eating Welsh food that they've never had before, dealing with the Welsh accent, which is actually very hard to, for many people to understand. And all while pretending to be Brits with the locals. It just it boggles the mind. And, and soaring, absolutely soaring, getting confident, learning how to fight, and being the guys when they land at D-Day, D-Day, as one of them said, you know, where all the other soldiers would draw straws to get to see, stay, see who got to stay behind for the most dangerous missions. Mm. Ex-troopers were drawing straws to, got, to get to see who could do the most dangerous missions. They wanted to be at the front of everything. Yeah, I loved it. And the stories of them trying to blend in with these families in Wales oh. while they're being trained. And yeah. uh, these families are thinking, okay, we've got these young soldiers. They're going to want to go down to the pub and drink a lot and be wild. And, and instead, the, the guys are sitting at their house and reading Schopenhauer and stuff. And they're going, exactly. hmm, and they're going oh, these are some strange soldiers. <laughs> yes, exactly. And as one of the local Welsh villagers said in an interview after the war, I thought this was so cute. She said, 
And they were just such nice boys. They were so polite because mm-hmm. they were. They were like these guys who were put in this strange situation and had to make the best of it. Well, it's quite a book, and, and we appreciate uh, you coming back to the show to, to talk about it again. Oh, and thank you so much for having me again. It's been so delightful to speak to you again. The book is X Troop, The Secret Jewish Commandos Who Helped Defeat the Nazis. Leah Garrett wrote it. And it just came out in paperback with a new cover, and uh, they did a really nice job on this. And, and I'm curious, uh, Mariner Books, is that now part of HarperCollins? Yes. So the book originally came out with Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Okay. Then that was That's the hardcover version. And then they were taken over by HarperCollins, and Houghton Mifflin Harcourt became Mariner Books, which is part of HarperCollins. Okay, yeah, that yeah. really threw me when when HarperCollins sent me the book. I was like, wait a minute. Okay, so they gobbled them up. Okay. Yeah, they they did. Uh, and I, so now it's Mariner, which is the small subsidiary, but the larger house is HarperCollins now. Excellent. Well, Leah, thanks again. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. For the book, no, I'm Vic McCunis. <laughs>